Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hey everybody, welcome to the Here We Are podcast, another special pandemic edition. I've been uh, I started reaching out to uh, um, a lot of past guests of mine that that I remember fondly having good conversations with that I thought might have some relevant uh, stuff to say about um, uh, the kind of the new perspective uh, and, and what's going on in the world today. And uh, joining me is return guest Colin Holbrook. Colin, can you uh, introduce yourself to people for us? Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Colin Holbrook. I'm a researcher in the Cognitive Science Department at UC Merced. And most of my research has to do with either the detection or assessment of threats or decision-making um, under context of threat about things such as the propriety of the use of force, confidence in who will win in a conflict, um, and sometimes moral judgments around those things. And as one might imagine, this overall topic lends itself towards um, a particular way of thinking about group prejudice um, and um, some differences related to political orientation. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. So I'm, I'm very much uh, interested in, in group preferences and anyone who isn't into group preferences, um, I'm against them. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're the others. <laughs> they're the others. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, can you can you explain some of that? Maybe some of your past work and interest in in that. Well, it's funny as an academic, especially when you're on the job market. One of the most essential skills is the ability to make your work seem cogent and coherent. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm doing that in real time, but I've got some practice doing it. Um, so, with regard to the representations of threat. A bunch of my postdoctoral work that I did with, with Dan Fessler at UCLA had to do with um, a conceptual representation of relative threat in terms of a kind of metaphor, which would be a representation using the dimensions of physical bodily size and strength as, as um, intuitive ways for the mind to represent the resource holding potential, we might say, um, of, of different sides in a potential antagonistic conflict, which is just a long-winded way of saying who's going to win. Mm. Um, and then this is a fundamental decision that um, throughout our, the, our lineage's history and, and, and that of many other animals, uh, knowing, being able to anticipate correctly whether you or or another party, be that a predator or a fellow member of your species, is going to win should conflict erupt, or even whether third parties. So you may be assessing to uh, another set of groups, uh, but knowing sort of who to, who to root for or who might need your help, or you know, does a certain person stand a good chance of, of, of winning this conflict with or without your intervention? There's any number of contexts in which this is extremely adaptive um, mm -hmm. to have this ability but another interesting thing uh, or notable thing about this is that you have to decide very quickly, usually. And so the idea that we developed um, was that there would be this kind of quick and dirty heuristic way of assessing, you know, who's going to win quickly. And because both, if you look at it from a phylogenetic perspective in terms of um, the evolution of the species, it has consistently been the case 
that all else being equal, bigger, stronger animals or fellow humans are going to win in a fight. Mm -hmm. But that is recapitulated in overdevelopment. So what we'd say ontogenetically, uh, you know, as babies and, and upward, we all had the experience of being pretty much at the, at the mercy of bigger, stronger people, be they our parents, caregivers, older kids, whomever. Right. And so for multiple reasons, both phylogenetically and ontogenetically, it makes sense to think that we might intuitively represent sort of abstract uh, factors relevant to threat using this kind of metaphor, this conceptual metaphor of being big and strong. Hmm. And so um, I looked at this from a number of different kind of convergent angles. So just to throw out a few, and if, if you're curious about any of these, um, I'm happy to expand on it. Sure. But, but we found that, well, I should say what we typically did in these studies, um, and I should, would also like to mention that some other groups, there's some um, work that's been done in Spain and elsewhere by totally independent groups using similar methods or mildly adapted versions of our methods have, have replicated this stuff, which is always nice. Um, but essentially what we would do is have people report what comes to mind um, in different contexts. Um, so we might describe an individual, like in a, in a scenario, you know, imagine you meet Darnell and here's what Darnell's doing during the day. Or we might show a, a cropped face, for example, where you can only see the face, but not the body or even the neck. Um, and we might manipulate whether the face looked angry or not, for example. Mm -hmm. And then ask people, basically, here's a fun game. How tall is this, is this dude? Um, mm. Like, how ripped is he? Uh, and it's always the same picture. So it can't be cues in the face that explain any differences. Mm -hmm. It's differences in terms of how we describe them or the kind of person who is being asked. So anyway, that's very big, but if you can kind of imagine this, how big, how strong are they? So here's some of the greatest hits. We found that um, if you tie people, this is a fun study to do in a way. Um, the IRB was interesting, but if you tie people to a chair in six-point restraints, so they're completely immobilized, um, they will assess, in our study, they assessed um, these cropped angry faces as corresponding to um, males who were about 10 centimeters taller uh, than when they weren't um, <laughs> totally restrained in that way. And they also, in that study, estimated themselves to be shorter, uh, physically shorter. So we didn't just ask them, how tall are you? Because we weren't restraining their brain. Um, but we gave them this ambiguous task where we, we put a laser pointer up a wall and said, stop us when it's at your standing height. And this was sort of contrived. I won't go into the details unless you want, but it was contrived in a way to be at perceptually ambiguous, our thought being that feeling small would fill in the gap and lead people to say, stop, you know, the laser pointer has hit my standing height sooner. And in fact, that's what we found. Um, mm. The people, when they were physically completely restrained, represented themselves or guessed that they were quite a bit shorter uh, than they actually were. Mm. Uh, that's just, that's one study. Another was uh, a field study in which we had, we approached groups of men who were either rolling in a group of, um, I think it, I have to look at the paper, it was either just two or maybe it was three or three or more uh, versus walking alone. So we did that one version of the study that way. And then in another, to make sure that it wasn't just a difference obtaining for the kind of guys who walk around as loners versus the kind of guys who roll in groups. Um, so either we separated them uh, from a group or we just picked them naturally walking alone or in a group. And in either case, 
when alone, people represented this, this ambiguous terrorist, um, violent terrorist character as being uh, bigger and stronger than when they were with the group. Hmm. And, what's, and then I'll give you one more example and then expand a little, which is um, one of the first studies we did was very straightforward. We just showed hands. We said this was a task in which you are, we're assessing people's ability to accurately infer body types just from hands. And then the story went, we've put familiar objects in the hands just to give you some sense of reference. And we manipulated what they were holding and they became increasingly more lethal. What are you holding there? A pen. Okay, so that would be the control object. Uh, we, and, but if, say if you had a big kitchen knife, that would be <laughs> uh, a lethal object. What, what about, uh, I have a cowboy hat. That's a third variable because then you would think, oh, what do I know about cowboys? Are cowboys likely to, to be card-carrying NRA members? And if they have a gun, maybe they're right. bigger. Because that's, in fact, what we also had um, hands holding uh, firearms. And whether it was a kitchen knife or a firearm, people imagine just knowing, just the information that the person was dangerous led them to imagine a bigger, stronger person, um, which makes no, um, like the capacity to do harm with a firearm is not particularly related to how much time you spend in the gym or how tall yeah, you are. Right. Um, and I, I could go on, but, but there's a number of other uh, ways that we, that we showed information about a person, either their moral character, their criminal history, um, or in a study looking at group bias, their race, Mm. Um, led people to imagine them as as bigger, stronger, and usually um, more threatening. Could I ask um, how how does this how do these kind of evolved representations and judgments that that we have, or or um, um, uh, uh, somewhat nurtured by um, being born to people larger than you? How how do those make sense of th- people on say TV or people on a stage. I think, I think most people are oh, yeah. usually shocked yeah. by, yeah. Uh, by how short the, the superhero male actor is, you know, I, 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 um, I've gotten, um, I had, a I, I have this, I, I have these ongoing, um, uh, issues with, with, uh, with, with Brad Pitt where once in a while, I, I, I was, so here's a, here's a good story of like the sort of thing that'll happen to me. I was going to, uh, I, I was going to Jamaica and I handed the, the woman my passport at, um, at, uh, at the counter at, at um, at my airline and she looked at the picture and she's like, this is like Brad Pitt. And she's like all excited and going around and showing people. And then I was like, oh, I've, I've gotten that before. And she goes, oh, no, no, you don't look like him. Just this picture does. And then, and then I get, so I look, I, I sometimes in just the right light and conditions look just enough like Brad Pitt to remind people that I'm not Brad Pitt. So it's like this. Yeah disappointing like i'm like bad pit um, you're the bizarro bizarro world version it, of Brad exactly Pitt. like a little bit like wildly off the rails. yes yeah, strung yeah. out a little bit doesn't take good care of themselves doesn't get sun um yeah. that that sort of thing right. um and, but then i saw him so like a week ago i or whatever i saw him on uh, uh flipping through the channels there was some 
like Property Brothers show and Brad Pitt was was on doing some home remodel thing. And I saw him next to those guys uh, mm-hmm. who who are who I would consider to be more effeminate than than Brad Pitt. And then I'm like, oh wait, Brad Pitt's short. I'm taller than Brad Pitt. But I would have just assumed like, you know, I watched Fight Club 20 years ago and all of these, just my mental representation of who he is is so large. Same with people have this with Tom Cruise. I think Tom Cruise is, I don't know how tall he is, but I think he's a very short man. But he's yeah. in like these Mission Impossible movies and all of these. How, how does TV mess with that uh, that ability? Well, okay, so there's two things built into that. One is media um, as, a, as a conveying, you know, um, perceptions or even stereotype-based inferences about action heroes and so forth. So let's hold media in one, one hand. But then let's also look at the nature of what this perception and height might be representing. And um, I think it's much more likely that you see Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise as relatively prestigious in your society than as violent um, antagonists. Like, I don't, you know, I don't worry about Brad Pitt showing up late at night. Right, my right. Although I, maybe I should for other reasons. But because <laughs> um, my wife, she's only human. <laughs> but uh, um, uh, so there's this whole parallel work. So, so while I'm a postdoc at UCLA working with Dan Fessler, um, toiling away, and we're showing really, I only, I mentioned several different studies in a very superficial way, but we did, I don't know how many studies. And we kept showing this threat represented to size and strength effect even when the threat had nothing to do with actually being physically strong. So for example, um, if you represent, uh, if you say that a terrorist group's leader is very capable and strategic, people will imagine a member of that group as physically taller. Um, mm. Or after Osama bin Laden was, was killed by the United States, people suddenly imagined Al Qaeda militants as shorter and weaker. Um, things like this, mm. where it really does seem in a sort of abstract sense, relative, uh, potential to win in a conflict is being represented in terms of size and strength, right? So size and strength means threat. We're done here. No, right? It's more complicated because as you just mentioned, prestige also seems to be related to size. Hmm. Importance, valuation seems to be related to the conceptual, you know, um, associations we have with physical size. I mean, like, there's a reason that the Empire State Building or whatever is so huge and imposing. It's not because we think it's going to kill us. Um, it's impo- It's just important and holds rank in our society. So uh, I'll let you ask your question, but but uh, we did actually a study directly trying to to look at what determines whether the size and strength body representation pertains to prestige or pertains to threat, and how do those two interact? Um, because there is a completely sort of separate literature that does, says very little about threat and says everything about prestige within a society and, and shows a similar pattern of results. But did you have a question? Well, that is blowing my mind and it's reminding me of, um, so I just had um, Deborah Lieberman back on the show with the co-author of her um, book, Carlton Patrick, talking about her book, Objection. And we were talking about, um, you know, these, uh, and, and I've had a, now another episode recently since about this, about these kind of 
early, I guess we'd say more primitive or earlier on in our evolutionary history, these, um, these um, uh, adaptations that led to senses that were meant for um, something like, hey, don't eat this. This is disgusting. This could make you sick. And then later on, as our our evolves, or as our brains kept evolving and becoming more complicated, and then we we have these things springing up like this idea of politics and morality, and and these um, more kind of subjective worlds of perception and these these conceptual associations. It's interesting that then. It, in the same way that you go, this politician disgusts me, even though you aren't physically eating that that politician. Yeah. Um, it, it's almost like the same, it, it's kind of reminding me of what you're talking about here, where, the, where there's just like almost a little bit of confusion in there of making sense of this new idea of prestige, where you, uh, it, it's built off of like the old evolved scaffolding meant for detecting kind of physical size and that sort of thing. Yes, yes. And so there are many threads in what you just said, which I am being extremely disciplined about not pulling. Um, <laughs> because, you know, if we tried to pursue them all, we wouldn't get very far with any of them. Um, but where you ended, this idea of um, one kind of functional, representational, or like psychological um, function being ex being used to build a new one, um, that's a really fundamental idea, and it's it's a bit of a hobby horse for me, actually. Um, uh, there's this notion in biology of serial homology. I don't know if, if Deb talked about this. Um, it's, a, it's not at all controversial. It's a really commonplace workaday concept, and it's just that uh, homology is when an existing structure is repurposed to make something new. Um, so if you go back far enough, for example, you'll find a common ancestor of the tooth um that is shared by by species as diverse as you know elephants and and the chipmunks um if one goes far back enough um and in some species you know um as the needs of of their ecological their environmental niche you know change um they the one structure turns into the other this is one of um a way that evolution sort of proceeds but in, in cases of serial homology what happens is a new structure is derived from the older one, but it coincides with it. It doesn't mm. replace it. So, mm. the, so the proto-tooth doesn't turn into just a tusk, but instead you have something new next to something old. And just to make this a little more concrete, if you open your mouth and you know, look around, you, this is a, an, sort of an example of serial homology where different teeth are sort of, some resemble others, but some perform different functions given their placement, you know, and their use in the process of chewing and so forth. Um, our spinal vertebra are like this, where they're sort of copy, tweak, paste, but don't replace, um, add. And that's, that, that's what they mean by cereal, um, not, not, nothing to do with milk, um, but it's cereal in the sense of a sequence. Um, leaves on trees, and once you are familiar with this idea, you see it everywhere. And um, in the last 15 years or so, this idea is starting to take hold in, um, in, in neuroscience as well. And it really comes to bear on this notion of why we would represent threat in terms of bodily size and strength and why we might represent prestige in a similar way. Just to toss out a few quick examples, there's this really interesting research at UCLA that uh, Carolyn Parkinson and her colleagues have done 
showing that social distance in the brain. So, sorry, I don't mean to trigger anybody or, you know, it's not a quarantine sense of social distance. It's a, uh, yeah. you know, how close are you in your social network to someone? Do you feel emotionally close? Are they, are they tight with you? Um, or are they, you know, are they BFFs or, or yeah. just, uh, uh, just an acquaintance? So it's a metaphorical sense of distance, right? Mm -hmm. We're not talking about how close they are in the room. We're talking about how close they are in your social life. Mm -hmm. But sure enough, what Parkinson and her colleagues have found is that the same parts of the brain used for gauging, um, for representing physical distance appear to have been repurposed um, to, 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 to represent social distance. Yeah. Um, and there's uh, other stories to be told about. Um, uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, we, we say, uh, we, 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 we use all of these fancy metaphors to conceptualize life. And so many of them are, are based in kind of this um, in, embodied cognition a little bit where, where, yeah. we say, where someone can be standing right next to you and you can be like, you seem distant right now. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, you'd need to do the, the experiment, but, but presumably the, you would see a common but not identical activation pattern. If it were the identical activation pattern in the brain, then you would truly just be thinking the same thought, right? Yeah. But it would be similar enough that some of the same circuitry used for representing literal physical distance would be, so the hypothesis would go, would be, would be active in the mind of the person who's metaphorically understanding the person as distant. Hmm. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. And anyway, and I just want to give another quick um, example um, because it makes a point about a few times in our conversation, you've mentioned evolved capacities and I think kind of implicitly put them as at one end of a spectrum, whereas learned or culturally acquired capacities are something different. I, yeah, yeah. I, I, I know I know better than to do the nature okay. versus right. nurture well, thing. To throw thing you but <laughs> so, so, I mean, so just to give another example of homology, yeah. that I think it's a very solid example, is um, have you heard of the visual word form area? Remind me. It, it seems is a, sort of familiar. Thank you for serial homology, though. That's going to be my word of the month. I'm I'm going to dig into it. Well, you know what? Google away. There's a bunch of interesting uh, papers, and I would I would recommend. I hadn't planned to sort of shout out Carolyn Parkinson, but I think her research is phenomenal, and um, she's a good place to start with that. Another really good place to start is with the work on uh, neural reuse in taking areas of of tissue that are across the species used for object recognition. So sort of things like categorizing, oh, is that an edge? Is that contiguous with this or line orientation? Things that, that, that we use to put together and assemble um, the way we represent physical objects. So in a natural scene, you might see, you know, oh, is that a branch? And then there's something behind it. So we have to be able to disentangle um, various objects so we know how to navigate and move around in space, right? Well, it turns out in literate societies, the this area is um, physically different. It is it is repurposed 
so some parts of that neural, neural real estate are given over in the visual work form area to representing words. Hmm. Um, in other words, our capacity to read um, and to sort of, you know, group uh, the low-level visual inputs into things like letters and words and sentences is repurposing this uh, object recognition capacity. And that's an interesting example of nature-nurture stuff, right? Because you could say nature has certainly evolved the capacity for object recognition. And you, when you find humans in non-literate societies, they don't have the visual word form here. It looks, there's actually a detectable difference, not only in their ability to read, but in their, the structure of their brain in this way. Hmm. Because those embedded in a literate society with you know, all of the apparatus that involves, who can be taught to read over the course of years, um, the way that, they're, that they're, they're, they're sort of novel culturally based capacity to do that is actually enabled by the phylogenetically sort of like the parts that we're born with. We have object recognition um, structures. And so given the right set of cultural inputs over enough time, we can reorganize those structures and make something new that now can recognize words. Hmm. Um, and, and so you couldn't have that learning without the structure, the previous structure. There's no way you can learn to recognize words without the ability to recognize, you know, trees and chairs and rocks. But mm. once, once you can do that, it sort of sets up the ability for culturally unique kinds of learning, which um, this is just an idea I return to a lot in terms of, you know, really trying to get past this notion that you have to pick between appreciating those elements of the mental uh, architecture that are um, largely sort of species typical and those elements which might be culturally unique because um, an evolutionary approach is completely consistent with the idea of culturally unique um, sensibilities. We're evolved to learn. Mm -hmm. And one way that we do so seems to be not the only way, but one way that I think is very interesting is through this process of serial homology. Mm. I, I mean, and I, I'm sure you would agree that that much of much of what we consider culture arose from some of our individual uh, preferences um, for for things as well, uh, too. Right? Like, uh, uh, like say. Um, uh, you know, having having a leader, having a president, having a king, whatever is sure. is, is is something that kind of arose culturally out of this kind of individual um, status seeking, um, status recognizing, um, it, um, it evolved. Uh. <laughs> well, and it, and things get very theoretical and very sort of messy because <laughs> at a certain point, it's not really so much nature versus nurture as individual selection pressure versus group selection pressure. Yeah. So were those groups that had certain kinds of leaders and certain kinds of institutions and rituals and beliefs, were those groups more more competitive at the level of group? So, you know, mm. uh, one of the, um, I think, somewhat compelling uh, stories about the evolution of, of religion um, tells a kind of multi-level story where at the level of the group, certain kinds of religions um, tended to bind uh, strangers together with a shared identity, tended to, um, to put it very simply, the idea that they're sort of moralizing gods in the sky watching you might tend, even if it's only a few percentage uh, points, 
to deter you from exploiting or acting in a self-interested manner. So groups that have higher cooperation, that they may be in less um, internal um, you know, predatory behavior within the group, might be better equipped to compete with other groups. And that sort of spreads those kinds of religious beliefs. That could be true, but it's completely constrained also at the level of the individual. So there has to be advantage for the individual to play ball with these beliefs, um, benefits that ramify down to them of being in a successful group where they as individuals are incentivized. And a lot of people in, in, in evolutionary anthropology or it's, uh, biology and evolutionary psychology get extremely coalitional around this issue of mm -hmm. whether it's the individual level of, of, of um, adaptation that's more important whether there's any role for the group or whether there's a multi-level dynamic and we're not going to settle that today. Um, oh, come uh, on. No, no, well, I'm not, I'm <laughs> I want not a clear definitive answer right I, now. I, I am I, not qualified I, to, but, but I would say that I am sympathetic to the multi-level approach personally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it seems, uh, I mean, I mean, you could certainly at least comment on what, um, what is kind of, uh, seemingly like in favor within academia it seems it seems like it seems like group sol selection completely went away for right quite a while and it seems like it's making a, a bit of a, a comeback in the yeah uh, yeah I think I think that's fair to say I think that's fair, really fair to say and there's this there's a society I'm gonna get it wrong but it's a, like cultural evolution society I believe is this up-and-coming and, coming and um, really smart really interesting people are involved with that hmm. um, and um, you know, I, but I, that, I'm not a topic expert in that at all. Uh, so, Don't worry so about it. It's just, but it sort of comes, comes in mind. I mean, one of the things uh, we mentioned, uh, possibly talking about was the role of re religiosity in relative risk, uh, perception and, 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 um, taking physical risks and so on. So that's, that's the main, um, area of my work where I've run into these arguments that, that touch on group selection issues or multi-level selection issues. Mm. Um, so I, I could say something about that if you want. I, I, I am. Um, well, I have. This isn't. Uh, let's let's get to that. But I have. Can I make a bridge from where we're going? And, and I'm maybe going to get like a little bit out there, and so you can you can take a pass on on all this. But just trying to combine these many ideas and move into religiosity as okay. as we're. Uh, uh, so I love this idea that attributing um, th this this kind of neural framework that we have for attributing physical distance being applied to these more um, subjective things like uh, it, how, how much of this is is applied in terms of in and out group stuff like like mm. right now it, so so the, it seems like there's this criteria of like how much you relate to a person like I would say that I you know this is the second time we've ever talked I feel like I relate to you um more closely than many relatives that i have in 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 terms of our kind of views about how how life works right and we're both white guys with beards too and we're both white guys with and i mean beards. and i mean for real there, there there's a lot of uh, sort of homophily there you know, or, you know yeah yeah and and, <laughs> and there's all there's all these different um but but a lot of I think a lot of people feel this way where you might feel more affiliated with say someone you've never met in your same political party sure. than you do someone very close to you that is not in your political party 
or or religion or what have you and and there's all these interesting um things of uh of there's there's like uh not to man i don't mean to harp on my poor grandma and her senior living uh facility uh she really is a a sweet lady but she's like uh you know she was raised in a different time and she has like lots of fears about um about like say muslims for example after 9-11 and everything and and what's so funny is she'll I'll, i'll like hear her say something as i'm like biting my tongue or whatever and to me i'm like if you only realize that you actually have more in common with some Muslim grandma in the, in the Middle East who has these exact same fears about yeah. Christians and, and Americans and whatnot, yeah. like you actually have more in common with that person than, than you have with me, but, but that person's in your out group. So there, there's just so many different criteria going on um, yeah. at the same time with how we assess these, these different, and in, in, in the same way, there's, um, it, it seems like there's people that are like, um, divergent thinkers or, or, or like to be like to go against the grain or whatever. And they might, they might attract more to say fringe ideas of, of like, so if you're a Westerner and you're like a new agey person or something, you're like, I'm into these Eastern philosophies and eastern religions i don't know if there's like uh people people in the eastern areas that are also have the same disposition that are like you know what we need is more hummers i i like this capitalism stuff going on in america just because they have this disposition to kind of think of whatever the fringe ideas are in their cultures and and so it just uh it I, I don't know exactly where I'm going with that, but just, but just the tangled web of variables that we we all are putting together all of the the time to to figure out who is in our group, who is related to us, and and you know what once like 9/11 happens, then we're all Americans, but then football season comes, and now we're Wisconsinites or 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 uh, Minnesota Vikings fans. The, the the many ways in which we're this is so fluid and changing so rapidly. Well, that that's the that's the part that I guess I of all the things you mentioned, um, and it's true. There's so many variables to consider that you should always be be suspicious when somebody has a sort of greedy theoretical model. It's like, oh no no, I've got it. It's it's these two things. Like no, it's no. A complete story is going to involve many many factors. Um, but one of the things you mentioned was the fluidity or the sort of dynamic nature of group boundedness. Yeah. Uh, where from one moment to the next, or perhaps motivated, like maybe I love those pictures um, of the Bush family holding hands with various Saudi royal family members. Um, suddenly, <laughs> yeah. you know, there is not a hint of you know, that they're kissing, literally, they're sharing cigars, you know, um, uh, because in that context, one might speculate that there's a lot of shared incentive to make some money and make some deals. Right. Um, so that sounds a little ominous, but by and large, I think it's a positive thing or at least something we can leverage in a positive way that these um, group boundaries, at least not all of them appear that fixed and some appear stickier than others. 
So to cite some other people's work, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Lita Cosmides and David Whiskey yeah. and others, but they, they've done work and a bunch of the collaborators that I, I won't be able to pull offhand, but they've done this interesting work on automatic group categorization where they were specifically looking at the extent to which race versus sex were in a sort of bottom-up automatic way more memorable and more kind of sticky in terms of patterned ways of categorizing people. Mm -hmm. And I won't take the time, you can look up their papers, but they had a sort of a clever method looking at um, patterns of, of error in memory. But what they essentially did was they had in different versions of it, but they would have black and white characters say, but they would be described as on two different sports teams or two different teams, and they'd be wearing different colored t-shirts. So you might say, just for example, a red t-shirts and blue t-shirts worn by a bunch of black guys and white guys, or it might be uh, groupings looking at men, women uh, of different races. But there's another way to categorize them, which is by which team they're on. And what they found was, over many studies, they found many things, but one of the sort of headlines, as I understand it, is that the the automatic categorization of people by gender was very fixed or by i should say by sex um not by the the gender that they identify with but by biologically whether the, it was a what's appeared to be a male or female at at a sort of um, early processing stage and a sticky automatic categorization kind of sense sex seemed pretty fixed it'd be hard to not group people by sex However, race seemed remarkably um, easy to dismiss. It didn't seem like we were in some sense, I don't really love the phrase hardwired that suggests this nature nurture stuff, but just to indulge in it for a second, people do not seem to be based on that research, um, hardwired to group people by race, but we are coalitional. And so it was very easy for people to make mistakes where they would remember people as being on the wrong team but not the race seemed to be mostly incidental. Hmm. So one of the take-homes from that with regard to race bias, which is a very, as we know, very severe, well, as woke white privileged guys, we know it's a really big problem, but I mean, but it is. Um, and and uh, to the extent that the uh, some of this research can speak to uh, like ways we might address r r racial disparities and, and, and prejudice, it's heartening to, to know that there's good reason to think that we aren't really like sort of evolved or it's not automatic for us to necessarily bend people according to race per se, but we are evolved uh, in, a, in a broad sense to bend people by groups. Hmm. So it doesn't, I don't think some people have speculated that we just need sort of one big all encompassing group. Maybe, I don't know. I'm not really sure what that looks like, but what I think you can do is in different contexts, you can rearrange the walls and rearrange the coalitions and say like, you know, for this purpose, for this shared purpose, let's all, let's highlight the ways that we have affinities and let's restructure the teams. Let's put everybody in the same color t-shirts, even if some of us are gay or some of us are um, black or some of us are whatever um, would otherwise be the kind of group boundary that would create prejudice. Um, so, so that's, that's pretty interesting, I think. Um, and actually in one of the studies we did about looking at representations of threat in terms of size and strength, and also circling back to representing status in terms of size and strength, what we did was 
we manipulated the race identity of these imagined characters, but we also manipulated the threat or status of the person. And we did this by using um, names that are prototypically associated. That's all we changed. And there's a bunch of social psychology type studies that use a similar paradigm. And you see kind of racial disparities in hiring or, or renting and so forth on the basis of just the name. So when Deshaun or Darnell were described as, as a certain way, they would be imagined as bigger and stronger and more dangerous, more physically aggressive than when Connor or Wyatt or Garrett, these are the very white names that we used. Um, however, when you, oh, and not only that, but their physical size, the physical size imagined of the black characters was pretty robustly linearly, like this kind of a correlation, like a 0.4 or 0.5 correlation um, with how dangerous they were. So when thinking about that character, their size seemed to index their threat. Mm. Size is threat. But when we, you imagine the white characters, that wasn't the case. Mm. Um, but, it, but it did track better with their imagined status. Mm. So the meaning, the meaning of, the threat of the size representation was contingent on who you were thinking about. But that's not all that surprising because unfortunately we know there's a lot of um, racial prejudice and, and stereotypes of certain groups as more dangerous. And we found a similar but somewhat muted pattern when we compared Latino versus um, East Asian characters. And we compared those, those um, two groups because in reality, they're about the same size and weight, according to, um, if you look at the, the, the demographics they take in, in, at the national level. Um, and likewise, you might, some, some people are surprised to learn that white and black men are on average about the same height and the same weight. Because, but then you might say, oh, it's media depictions and so forth. You know, media depictions of one group as say, you know, there's overrepresentation of black um, athletes in terms of relative to population in, in basketball and in, um, you know, football and things like that. So you might say, oh, that's just all it is. So what we did in a further step was we described the characters as having more or less prestige and more or less danger. So now the white character, say Garrett, is a con who, you know, did time for a violent crime and he's just got out of jail. And um, we, we might describe the black characters as accomplished pillars of their community, highly educated, entrepreneurial, and so forth. And when we did that, we were able to um, pretty much negate the, the effects of race. So those boundaries were very negotiable when we gave people other kinds of information, other ways to, to bend them. So now instead of being just um, some hypothetical uh, black man in their mind, uh, this became uh, a successful entrepreneur who happened to be black. Um, and likewise, Garrett uh, or Wyatt, when described as a con, uh, an ex-con, that uh, they suddenly uh, are imagined and sort of stereotyped um, in a way that was actually quite similar in a sort of disturbing pattern. The white ex-violent criminal looked in terms of the ratings like just an ordinary black guy who was, had never done anything in the minds of our participants. Uh, across, across a number of three studies that were published, a few that are um, moldering have <laughs> yet to be published. But these are large data sets and I feel pretty pretty confident in, in these results. Um, and uh, one other interesting detail of that though is that where we, it was easy to get the size of the white safe characters 
to correlate with their imagined prestige. So if Garrett's big and strong, it's because he's high status. Um, but we never, even when we described the black characters as insanely prestigious, they graduated top of their class at Harvard, they have a successful business, they're well liked by everyone in their community, you know, all of that stuff. The best we could do was flatten the correlation. Hmm. We could never make, at an, even an implicit level, the correlation between Darnell's height and size and, and muscularity with, could never significantly correlate with the status that he owned or the status that he enjoyed in his community in the same way that it could for any white character. So some, some elements of those group stereotypes were negotiable by giving people, you know, individuating information like, oh, it's not just, okay, this name suggests they're in this group, but here's all their accomplishments. And now you can categorize them that way. It worked pretty well, but not, um, it didn't entirely erase the implicit bias. Okay, so one one goofy question about me, and then let's let's go deep into racial disparity. Uh, <laughs> let's let's do a silly one first. I I have um, uh, oftentimes, uh, well, I I have my own reasoning for why this is, but I would love to hear yours in the light of this uh, of of the work that you do. I often get after I get done performing, you know, room of people sees me on uh, on stage. And a very common thing is afterwards, people meet me, and I'm six three and a half, um, six six four in heels. I was good, I don't. And, I was going to ask you if you were really that tall because my recollection was that you you were because we we met before. Yeah, and I remembered you as being tall, but I wasn't sure if it was that I just don't hold you in high esteem, and so my. <laughs> But anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah. Is it is it because I'm not doing a very good job, or, or I'm not very commanding on stage, or I, I, if I was if I was funnier or more accomplished seeming on stage, would I would I get less of that? I always just assumed it was that people just assume kind of an average height of an individual when they're on a stage, and anything that deviates from that is going to be a little bit surprising, whether it's shorter or taller. I, well, I think that's very true in that uh, people's guesses in all of these studies we did were always anchored by reality to some extent. I mean, I mean yeah. the, they would typically be within spinning distance of just an average height. Yeah, because, because people do are informed by their observations and might just sort of say, well, I don't know, I'm going to guess something near average. And anything that deviates is, is interesting. But I would, I would say, and this might go back to connecting prestige and threat a little bit, is that we found that the similar um, brain representation of size and strength could be deployed to represent either threat or, or prestige, even when the prestige was in a way that had nothing overtly to do with physical force. And in plenty of our studies, we would find these dangerous, big, strong people were imagined as low in prestige because it's true. You know, violent, antisocial characters in our society are low in prestige. You know, mugging people is not a way to get um, <laughs> outside of certain, unless you're in, you know, the Sopranos or something. Yeah, right. Um, but that's interesting. But but uh, um, but so what 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 I think is happening there is that the same systems for uh, representing prestige are exploiting the pro presumably older system for representing relative threat, hmm. and that's especially likely in our lineage, wherein if you look at you know an, 
other kinds of, of animals that live in social hierarchies, they're almost always dominance-based. So status was rooted in dominance, and dominance is the ability to use coercive force. Mm-hmm. So I, the alpha, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm in charge. So it would be a, not much of a step to move from, okay, threat is related to size, literally, in this case. Mm-hmm. Size is related to status, literally, in dominance hierarchies. But now as humans, and you know, I don't want to go into the comparative, but there's you know, some other uh, animals may also have more prestige-oriented kinds of, of status. But especially in humans, there are subgroups where there's still definitely dominance hierarchies, where you know, there's a, a person in charge because they can hurt you. Mm-hmm. That's coercive. Um, but by and large, our species is characterized by cooperation. And um, status is linked to being other-regarding, pro-social, when you find out that someone's been, you know, self-interestedly sucking up all the resources and not sharing with people, that tends to not be a good look for a leader. And eventually people will pull them out of their leadership position. There's cultural variation and historical variation, but by and large, you can say that's typical of humans, is that our mode of status is more often related to prestige, mm. uh, which is not about dominance. It's actually mm. sort of orthogonal to it. Um, but, right. but, it, but, it, but it's not without the ability to inflict costs. Mm-hmm. So even, even your nice teacher, you know, can give you a bad grade or, you know, uh, people who hold status and prestige in their society can inflict reputational costs on you. They can withhold, uh, maybe they have knowledge. Maybe their, their status is rooted in their, their skill, but they don't share it with you because that's a way of, of, of exerting a cost on you because you've done something. So even, even the sort of nonviolent prestige still has leverage. And in some cases, it, uh, leaders within, within the group might help organize violent action to say um, police, like some, a member of the group does something um, appalling, then they might help organize a posse or in other ways, you know, inflict violent retribution on that person, or in an intergroup conflict sense, a prestigious person who normally would not be related to violent action might, on behalf of the group, um, organize or even carry out violent action. So even though in practice, um, or even though in principle, and in many cases, human societies have status rooted in prestige, not dominance, it's not a clean it's not as clean of a distinction as, as one might think at first. Mm. Very often, even the prestigious leader has to have uh, the ability to, to exert costs, sometimes even literally violent costs, um, on others. So it makes sense that that prestige as size um, circuitry is probably parasitic on um, drawing on the threat as size circuitry mm. with modification. And that's something I think is a good, uh, plausible case of serial homology in the brain. Well, I was hoping for a clear, easy way to make me look taller on stage, but it seems a little uh, no, no, more complicated. No, no, so, so let me speak to that. I, I would guess, I, I would, your manner is self-effacing. Yeah, so too much self-deprecation. Yes, yes. Oh, okay, let's get rid of that. And then at first I was like, well, okay, now I need to make jokes about how much I get laid and how much money I make. And, but then you're like, nope, that's not going to work. That's going to come off too. So now I need to think of jokes 
about what a good cooperator I am. Maybe I maybe I need to work in more like improv or something like well, that. Or, or we can go the other way and just and, and describe your your hobbies as that of a like violent criminal. Or <laughs> and then you, you could be. I mean, you wouldn't be prestigious, but you'd be big. Yeah, and threatening. Yeah. Whatever gets right. the job done. I need people to perceive me as tall. So, um, uh, in in terms of this, uh, back to the much more serious uh, subject of of uh, racial disparity, uh, because this is as uh, one one of the things that I have been exceptionally concerned with with all of this, as there is as the the COVID, the quarantines, the pandemic going on. As I do believe, there's like incredible amounts of opportunity for making new changes and having fresh starts and getting people informed and blah, blah, blah. Um, I really worry about things being rolled back from a social standpoint um, a little bit. I worry about more um, domestic abuse, more more women uh, having a having a, a, a assumed role in the household and, and, and things like that potentially that, that um, that might be impacted. What do you think of um, of some of the kind of racial disparities in the in the health outcomes during um, that of of the COVID nineteen and and um, and, and some of the it, did I, I I'm not sure that I read this correctly, but but my impression is is that some of the um, is, is some some of the communities that have more of a more minority population have been more deeply impacted by some of this. Is this just historical that, you know, some of these weren't the best neighborhoods and needed some help already anyway, and maybe didn't have the best hospitals or are there some other factors going on or are there, uh, 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 can we expect maybe a little more outgroup bias when something like um, a disease avoidance, um, th uh, mechanism is, is being constantly primed well i'm gonna i'm gonna leave the disease avoidance part out of it because that, that's a whole that's a whole conversation i'm personally not um as persuaded by the some people have linked xenophobia with things like disgust sensitivity and so forth mm -hmm. so i'm gonna put that um to one side fair but enough I, you're 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 not you're not the first person on the show to question some of those studies um yeah by the way it, it seems it seems like maybe they're not uh, bearing out or as exciting as they originally were. Well, I mean, not to be drawn into a tangent, but they sort of postulate an ancestral world in which the people across the river had diseases you didn't, and so don't uh, don't go near them. Um, yeah. In a way that it, it's hard for me to um, envision that as actually playing out, like the kinds of diseases that you would need to get. Um, Anyway, but I, I, I sucked you into having the yeah, conversation anyway. You did it. You did it. must be my prestige. Yeah, that's probably good. Or you're, or you're too scared. Um, I'm going to pull the shoot though and go back. Um, sure. You, you mentioned racial disparities in the context of the pandemic. And um, I don't have the stats, you know, at my fingertips, but in different, in Chicago, in New York, and in, in other places, um, black people, and other um, racial minorities, but I think in particular, relative to representation in the population, they're they're dying at a higher rate, um, and um, seemingly more more susceptible to serious harm from this disease. And you mentioned 
I think the most likely, and I don't know the answer to this, this is speculation. Uh, uh, it seems to me the most intuitive and um, straightforward place to start with that is racial disparities in access to healthcare. I mean, obviously. And that gets to political and institutional and societal factors um, having to do with um, treating people humanely and equitably. Um, so I don't think I'm going to, so I'm going to say like, that's probably explaining most of this, mm -hmm. but, um, you know, sort of someone who has a hammer, all these years, nails, I guess, having, having worked on racial bias from the point of view of this, uh, representation of a threat and of formidability, this physical size and strength, um, gets me to thinking about, uh, research going back all the way to the early two thousands, I believe, um, looking at a sort of ironic benefit to black communities of um, underprescription of opioids, where um, it could have been worse, uh, but there was actually a racial um, inequity in that doctors were more likely to prescribe white people opioids for 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 pain. Mm. And you know, the data aren't there to characterize what the psychology of that is. But when you couple some of the work that I and my colleagues have done, uh, looking at um, implicit biases towards uh, especially black men as being physically strong and physically um, sort of imposing and potentially aggressive uh, in a way that would be very consistent with thinking of them as less sensitive to pain. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I don't mean this just in a sort of, you could look at this from the point of view of dehumanization and other perspectives, which I think are very valid and probably would have a lot to um, to help explain this stuff. Uh, but here, I'm, I, what I'm suggesting is possibly it's not just that seeing a, a group as less human, which is you know horrible, um, and I, that does happen absolutely, but also in particular as more um, implicitly threatening. And if that's represented in terms of their physical prowess and you know their their formidability and their constitution. So they're big, they're strong, they don't feel pain, they're more threatening, right? This is, mm -hmm. and again, these are ugly stereotypes, but we know they're real. Um, we know that just if you have, are a human being who's paying attention, and you know that if you've, if you've been reading the scientific literature on this. So this kind of a implicit stereotype of a group might lead itself to imagine them as less vulnerable potentially. And again, this is highly speculative, but one wonders whether some, I don't know what small percentage of the um, inequities in people getting sick from COVID might be due to um, even uh, healthcare or, or other uh, professionals overestimating their 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 ability to get better or their ability to heal. Um, a lot more information, but this is not a responsible thing to just speculate. I mean, I, I, the huge caveat, you would need to know many more of the details, for example, in my mind, I'm imagining some scenario wherein there's limited medical supplies or limited time, and a healthcare professional um, implicitly deems one patient as more in need of attention than another, mm -hmm. which is a different story than one patient as more human than another, or one patient as more valuable than another. But they might actually implicitly think, oh, by dint of their racial category, this person is more, Healthier. they're going to get better. Yeah, they're strong. Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's almost it's almost like a, a pro racial. Uh, um, I wouldn't uh, say that, uh, but, 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 but no, no, no. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm not. I'm not saying that either. Yeah, but yeah. but like, uh, uh, 
that that's an interesting. I never heard that take before because uh, because it is, um, it, you know, to see much in the same way if you see anyone of like say my age compared to someone who is like uh, seventy um, comes in with COVID and and you're picking between who to yeah. help. You're yeah. you're 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 going to make an assumption that I am healthier and therefore in less in in less need of the healthcare just at first glance, even though you don't understand that I've smoked for 16 years of my right. life and have barely have a liver left and uh, don't bathe frequently and uh, the bathing thing's not true, but the rest of it, I was on a roll, so we might as well. Oh, I forgot I'm not supposed to do self-deprecating stuff anymore. See, old habits die hard. But but it's that sort of thing where where uh, I, I don't I don't mean pro I, I mean like counterintuitive to yeah. how we would normally think about racism as as being like uh, clearly like this is a lesser person. It's more of a it's more of a like hey I. Michael Jordan's my favorite athlete. Uh, that guy's really healthy, and therefore, maybe in someone else who looks like him yeah. is also healthy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's a sort of prediction that falls directly out of out of it's an entailment of the extent to which this representation of size and strength is actually doing um, work in our you know implicit decision making process. If 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 that's if that's how the machine is set up in terms of gauging this assessment of a person, then it's an entailment that, that okay, they're, they're more dangerous, they're more physically formidable, and they're maybe, you know, more healthy to the extent that people have an, an association between physical size and strength and ability to, to withstand an illness. Mm. Um, again, that's very, very speculative, but there is a sort of, if you look at it, there's a, um, a, a, a pretty strong similarity in the overall pattern between um, what some small amount of what we're currently seeing in the terrible racial disparities mm -hmm. and the previous data showing multiple different studies in medical journals and things showing um, that black people were prescribed opioids to a lesser extent. Mm -hmm. um, so who knows? It, it could be, and, and it's, it's, it's not just, I mean, I don't think it's just interesting. Um, and I don't know, I mean, the first step in terms of addressing these racial disparities is not this. I mean, the first step is giving anyone who needs it access to to healthcare um, mm -hmm. in a in a competent way. You know, like a society that would be nice. Um, but at some moment, it is important to understand the exact nature of these um, intergroup stereotypes and biases in order to uh, be able to um, address them, mm -hmm. because it's a different it's a different remedy. Thinking that someone is less human than me, um, you know, you want, there's a different sort of re, um, uh, education or something, but you want to help that person to be less racist and appreciate the shared humanity. Mm -hmm. That's different than this person is, um, you know, more resilient to disease. That's just, mm -hmm. that's just a different kind of implicit bias if it's real. Yeah. It's well, 
Uh, this is uh, so the last kind of open loop um, that before we wrap up here um, is uh, we we started talking about uh, the supernatural. I really want to because uh, you know I I I don't want to. We haven't covered enough taboo subjects in this interview. Right. Let's talk about these religious fools, huh? I, uh, <laughs> you said that. You said that. I, I am not. I was joking. No, 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 no but listen, but listen. I, I, I don't, and I know, I know some of my, you know, evolutionist <laughs> colleagues might take offense at what I'm going to say, yeah, but I'm not, yeah. you know, full Dawkins, like, I you know, know, I know, I was making, against religion. I really I am not. I was making a joke. I was making a joke. No, but it is funny. You get these atheist fundamentalists and it's like, you know, it, I, I, I mean, if any, if anything, the more I've learned about evolution over the years, it, you know, early on when I learned about evolution, it made me, um, it, it made me really think lesser of of religious people. And as I learned more about religion, it it it, it gave me a lot of respect for where some of these beliefs came from and and the in the evolutionary history of them. But um, I wanted to um, kind of as we're oh shoot now how was i going to i was going to transition into this in such a fun particular oh we mentioned um at one point you you made a comment like well do we want everyone necessarily to be the same and and i'm 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 certainly i'm certainly not as someone who's been a contrarian their whole life i am certainly uh not for a 1984 let's all get on the same page and all think the same thoughts all of the time i i think the main issue with um with, with uh, uh where it, with diversity is that we aren't is that some of us rather than celebrating diversity mm -hmm. which evolution certainly seems to favor um in, in terms of uh Okay, well, don't agree with that. No, but, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. That's such an abstract statement. I don't think that like the whole, all the processes of evolution could really sort of land uh, for or against diversity. I'm not sure, but okay. Well, in 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 terms of humans, it seems like we are. It, evolution has favored us for our flexibility. Um, yes, and, and and we are an exceptionally. Uh, flexible species. Oh yes, yes, one hundred percent. And and so so I'm not I'm not talking about diversity just in terms of of uh, race necessarily, but just in terms of abilities, our our individual um, abilities to specialize and preferences. And it, it and it seems like yeah. it it seems like us as humans have just such a broader range of of um, kind of possible behaviors and stuff is all that I'm saying. So with, 100%. with, with, with that in mind, um, I say all that and then I find myself shaking my head at things like, um, you, you know, Hey, we should celebrate different ideas and, and everyone, uh, throwing out a bunch of different takes out there and being creative. But then I see someone, um, coming up with, uh, a virus caused by 5G cell phone towers, and uh -huh. I go, oh, maybe we don't need that much diversity. <laughs> like, and and so there, it does seem like there's like a little bit of a balance. It's tough to say, but I say that in in terms of be, before we start bringing up religiosity, because I I myself kind of 
like went off on, I was ranting during Easter when there was like a couple of these groups that still wanted to go to church. And really that's not, that's not anywhere near the majority of the religious people out there. Um, I, I, I don't want to be compared to Donald Trump just because I happen to be a white guy. Um, and, and, you know, all, all of these other, uh, you know, I, I spent a, I spent a lifetime in my early childhood of, of seeing like, uh, the only black people I know portrayed on the movie cops on TV. And, And so we definitely need to be careful of, 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 um, the, uh, yeah, painting uh, with a broad brush. Yeah. What, what's, what's the, how, what's the, what's the bias, um, the, um, at the attribution errors, oh, the um, fundamental, the attribution. fundamental attribution errors here. Um, but you know, I saw this clip um, that kind of sums up what you were saying about like if 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 people are religious, does that make them feel like maybe they're going to be more resilient to a disease? Mm-hmm. And I saw this clip of this woman. You know, CNN pulled pulled someone aside who was going into her church, and she goes. She goes, I haven't bathed in Christ's blood, so I can't get the disease. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, how, how much of that is true on a broader scale of, of, of a belief system which can in many ways empower you to um, have, you know, may, maybe embolden your immune system, maybe have this confidence that you wouldn't otherwise have but then maybe make you error in the wrong way in, in the same way that when I was a teenager, I thought I was invisible, invincible and invisible and invincible <laughs> um, and, and, and took far too many chances. Can yeah. religiosity explain some of that? Well, yeah. So all the provisos you gave are, are, are absolutely appropriate. Um, and I, I do, as someone who's um, kind of like, backed into working in the area called the cognitive science of religion work is this was something I never sort of envisioned myself as doing, but I sort of keep coming back to this as a fascinating subject. And at some point you go, Oh, well, if I've been researching this for like over a decade, maybe I study that. Um, but, uh, but, but one of the things that you run into is, is yeah, this kind of um, monolithic stereotype of, you know, keeping in mind most, most of the people who are alive, <laughs> you know, at, at, at this moment, um, as being dullards, or or something like that, and um, yeah. that's not at all true. Um, the other thing that's an important proviso, speaking of diversity, is the diversity of supernatural beliefs, some of which we would probably call religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in an American context, we, from our through our lens, we tend to, when we say religion, what you really mean, what's salient in your mind, is something like Judeo-Christian. Or if you're really going to be broad thinking, um, um, Islamic, but sort of people of the book, that tradition or something along those lines. And it's important to bear in mind that there are many people in small scale societies who do not believe those in those kinds of gods or, or, or supernatural agents. Not to mention, um, you know, people who are members of large scale religions, but who, which have important differences like the various strands of Buddhism and Hinduism and, and other things. Um, but with that said, yes, <laughs> I think that, that your intuition that holding cert, at least certain kinds of fairly um, 
prevalent themes of religious beliefs, specifically those with regard to supernatural or even like magical affordances for protection, mm-hmm. that supernatural agents who are to some extent benevolent in regard to you can intercede on your behalf, can help you walk between the raindrops or the bullets, can help you to um, you know get through a, a dicey, uh, dangerous um, adventure or, 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 or task without dying or without being severely injured, that that's an aspect of faith for many people. Uh, yes, I think that is the case and have some data to, to, to prove it. I mean, and, and lack of predictability and lack of control are are the two biggest stressors. Uh, you you combine both of those at the same time. Uh, now you're susceptible to say like learned helplessness or something that's going to incur this huge cost on 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 a person. And if you can have something that that gives you that semblance of control of predictability, not not just religion, but if you have a baseball player wearing lucky socks, if you get yourself a crystal, if you have any of these things, sure. That, that kind of kind of talisman behaviors. Yeah. Yeah. There there's that. And then there's, there's also, it seems like in, in terms of let's use this again, serial um, homology uh, in in terms of theory of mind being so useful in terms of, Oh, I can predict that this willy mammoth knows that I'm here and knows that I know it's here. and, And so, and maybe I can predict its pattern from that. And this is such a useful thing that maybe then you, start to anthropomorphize these large dynamic systems yes. and, and ascribe agency to Yes, that's actually that's really that's really an excellent connection that you just made spontaneously. I you know I've I've uh, tried to write about that. Uh, mm-hmm. the idea and and not you know many others have too. This notion that sort of ordinary mundane concepts um I'm sorry, um conceptual abilities, things like theory of mind, the mm-hmm. ability to represent a postulated mind uh, in the world could be uh, co-opted, repurposed, you know, you change the eyebrows a little bit, and now you can represent a postulated supernatural mind yeah. um, that doesn't have necessarily a physical body connected to it, but once, um, for, for very different reasons, just in order to enable our ability to socialize and to interact, you develop the theory of mind capacity, that sort of sets the stage um, for things like beliefs and in invisible minds that might nevertheless be out there and doing things. And I, so I, I think that you're right on the money with that intuition. Um, it, so, so, but, the, but the angle that I've taken on this is um, a little more specifically related to the interest in threat. Yeah. And going back to the idea that certain kinds of cultural belief systems um, might, one reason they might prop, prop, promulgate uh, themselves is that they have advantages for, um, for certain kinds of groups is that, uh, you know, Cooperation is a nice kumbaya sounding word, but one of the most um, exquisite, uh, exaggerated expressions of cooperation in the natural history of, of our planet is that of human warfare um, or of any kind of, of warfare uh, among chimps or other, other animals. I mean, they, that's, a, that's a metaphor. Humans do warfare in a way that it's funny. It's often described as though it were primal or animalistic in some sense. But no, it's actually uniquely human, our ability to cooperate at a large scale, to die and kill for people we don't know, to, to on behalf of constructs like nation states, which are completely bizarre from, mm-hmm. from uh, an ancestral point of view, um, for, for ideologies, 
um, which don't have an obvious material referent. Um, this amazing ability, I mean, it's horrifying. It could potentially destroy the world in the case of nuclear war or other things. But it's the case that it requires large scale, intricate cooperation and huge costs being and risks being undertaken on behalf of some idea, some group, mm. and so on. That's usually much bigger than the person, their family, their immediate community, right? And so one reason that some have argued that certain kinds of moralizing religions about big gods that are watching and that have moral standards that, that we should all adhere to and that good members of the religion, this, which is one way to define a group, uh, which is very useful and that it unifies, for example, total strangers, populations can scale. You know, if we're all a bunch of Christians or we're all a bunch of Muslims or, or what have you, um, then you can meet someone in the desert or, 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 in the, or in the forest or somewhere and you've never having met them before. But if you can sort of mutually identify as shared adherents, you have common reason to believe you're not going to exploit one another. And that may actually be true. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you know, you could zoom in on that and say some people are going to take advantage and, and pretend to believe and so on. And that's all true. But I'm talking about all else being equal. It, could, it may be the case that believing in these sort of big moral gods, and this is work, if you're interested, that especially Aranor and Zion has done a lot of, of, of work on, but a bunch of other people have too. Um, but uh, Nor and Zion has a book called Big Gods, which is a, a good read on this. It's very, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good book for just, you know, anybody. Uh, it's the kind of book you get at the airport. Um, uh, that, that, those groups might be advantaged in that they have uh, more internal cohesion and cooperation and more ability to sort of pivot and um, in cases of group conflict actually be more successful to incur greater costs, to be able to, willing to take more risks and to actually win in conflict. Because uh, as Dominic Johnson and others have shown, it's, it, there's actually, it's a little bit like Dumbo's feather. In cases of intergroup conflict, overconfidence actually is predictive of victory mm -hmm. probably for many reasons mm -hmm. from what like if a, if a group signals overconfidence think of all of the effects one those people are crazy but they're going to fight to the last man and it's going to be a big hassle mm -hmm. or 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 they may also be be willing to incur greater costs than a group that's less bonded or maybe has less of a shared you know ethos and less specific religious beliefs unifying them um in a way where um, just willingness to to um, to go forth uh, mm -hmm. with the belief in, in one group's inevitable victory, um, well, you would think. I mean, of course, in many token cases, that's going to lead to disastrous defeat. Yeah. Um, but they've done modeling work, and others have done other kinds of, of work looking at the historical record to try to uh, to make the case, which I think I don't think is a slam dunk case, but it's pretty compelling that overconfidence in victory um, might be sort of baked into the belief that big powerful gods are on your side mm -hmm. um, and I don't think it's now it doesn't mean that believing in big powerful gods makes you a violent person or anything like that I, but I also think it might help you do things like self-immolate mm -hmm. um, you know if you're trying to stay in the anti-war movement but you have this belief that you are shielded and enveloped in the support of these invisible forces and invisible benevolent agents, you might be more will, able to, you know, set yourself on fire or mm -hmm. put yourself in harm's way or chain yourself to a nuclear weapon and try to, to take physical risks um, 
to achieve an end which you have confidence you can do, um, that that belief in, uh, in supernatural support could facilitate that kind of, of action mm. that, uh, in a kind of overconfidence mode. And so um, very quickly, uh, I did a couple of studies looking at this, um, which I'm pretty proud of because they're field studies. Uh, you, you hear a lot about the replication crisis you know, uh, how many studies uh, have failed to replicate it in social psychology and I should say in other fields too, um, like oncology and things. Um, it's pretty disturbing, you know. At least half of findings before a certain time that weren't pre-registered were probably not replicable. Mm -hmm. But that's a big problem and everyone should pre-register and it, all that stuff, but, oh, go ahead. Don't you dare take my disgust leads to more outgroup bias away from me. <laughs> right. well, well, you know, the, the data fall where they may. But, um, but, but I think even more disturbing to me than the replicability crisis is the unrecognized by most validity crisis. Who cares if your contrived pencil and paper online study, I say as someone who's in a million online studies, but if your little laboratory or online or whatever model of the world doesn't replicate or does replicate, it only matters if it's valid to the thing you're trying to measure. If it's actually, you know, telling you something about real world behavior, real world decision making, right? So other people had done, and I don't mean to disparage their work at all. Most of my work is of that kind, actually, just trying to do more of this valid work. Um, but other people had shown that cues of supernatural support could increase risk-taking in different ways, in kind of laboratory ways. So what my colleagues and I did was we went to paintball, uh, paintball, like simulated armed, you know, coalitional conflict, uh, much more valid than sort of like, imagine you're in a war, or here's, a, here's an economic task and you might lose a few bucks. This is, okay, you and your buddies are going to go in a simulated way, shoot at these other people, and we're going to see who wins. Um, how confident are you in your victory and so forth? And we did a similar study with um, a knife fighting martial arts training class. I should say this was work done mostly with uh, Jeremy Pollack. Uh, and what we, what we found in both cases, sort of summarizing, was whether in paintball or in the knife fighting contest, where people had never, they didn't have experience fighting with knives. These were like plastic knives. They weren't going to kill you, but they might cut you. You might need a Band-Aid. It hurt. There were real stakes. And in a sort of Jets and Sharks way, people were fighting um, with these knives. And what they, unbeknownst to them, is half of them were, uh, were given a prime of supernatural support. A sort of on the nose, we actually kind of had them simulate group prayer almost. We had them take a knee. We never, we never used the word prayer. We just said visualization. But they took a knee around a speaker and listened to this visualization task with their eyes closed, in which they envisioned very vividly. Um, and we, we left it open. So whether it be God or just um, a force of the universe, whatever you think it is, so even secular people could kind of engage in this, but this feeling that an invisible force was with you, guiding your hand in the battle, protecting you, wanting you to win. And sure enough, we found in both cases that, that compared to a control visualization, which was similar in most respects, but it was just a positive imagining being near this beautiful tree and touching it. So it was similar in terms of vividness and positivity, but it had nothing to do with being supported. Hmm. And we found that when you visualize this kind of supernatural support, you were indeed more confident uh, about the battle um, in a number of ways. And we also found in one of the studies, we were able to assess individual differences in religiosity. So 
forgetting the visualization exercise, but just how religious, how, how religious are you? And we found a similar pattern where the people who, who identified as the most religious were most confident about, about the, uncom the, uh, the simulated conflict that was about to happen. And so that's a little bit of the work that I've done in this area. Um, religion's a very complicated and multifaceted thing. Mm -hmm. Anyone who tells you, oh, it's just to make you not be scared of death, or, oh, it's just to explain the universe, or it's just to do this or to do that, that person is oversimplifying in, in a sort of, I'm a reductionist material scientist, but in the negative sense, they're reducing painfully um, a very complex and kind of bizarre set of different factors all glomming together in what we call religion. Um, it's no one thing, and, and, but, but, but I think one way to think about the aspect, particularly that has to do with belief in positive, supportive supernatural agents, is that this kind of belief appears to help people to take physical risks, including to engage in battle. Mm -hmm. uh, with greater confidence mm -hmm. uh, yeah it also seems just like protective in a lot of ways too in terms of uh kind of like just world hypothesis stuff uh, 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 of like as long as i'm doing everything right no good will come of me and these gods if it's the universe or mother nature or whatever because i i do the th you see a lot of like i told you so stuff happening right now of like See, humans are out of control. Mother Nature was going to buck us off this planet. Tried to warn you, and and then there's there's a lot of like, uh, well, uh, not a lot of, but like religious folks now making the news, going like the gays did <laughs> caused this as they as they like to do. But but what's That's that? But yeah, but but it's but that allows for this nice like victim blaming where, where that's kind of. Uh, personally protective in the in the same way that like you don't need to worry about your daughter or wife or whatever being assaulted be, because she's doing the right things and and the person that was assaulted was not wearing what they're supposed to or behaving in this certain way in the same way like these people getting these viruses they aren't behaving in the you know they're whether they're being litter bugs or whether they're not ascribing to the right religion or what have you there, there's something there's there's something like protective about that. Like I don't need to worry about it because I'm following the prescribed rituals that that the that the agency looking out for me uh, likes. Yes, and there's a, there's the the just world theory literature goes back for forever, and there's many studies, and I don't doubt um, that that you can obtain such effects, and that there may be consolations to feeling like things are fair in some way. Yeah. Um, with that said, I have kind of a bone to pick with, it's kind of like from a thousand uh, miles above the earth looking at this literature. Yeah. Most of social psychology that, that purports to study threat is, it's kind of this very odd clinical, the therapized, um, very specific kind of threat, which is the threat of being anxious. Like, in other words, explicitly in most of these models, the quote-unquote threat in question is the threat that you'll be disturbed or that you'll feel uncomfortable. And so then they postulate these quote-unquote defensive mechanisms which address this threat by making you feel reassured. So, oh, I, 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 I have my, my, my group bias or my just world beliefs or, you know, there's a million of these different expressions that are thought to function in order to reduce your anxiety. Mm. Okay, now they might, 
But to my way of thinking, as someone who tries to be an evolutionist, this is kind of bizarre. Because anxiety, if, if from, from a functional point of view, anxiety is not the problem. Anxiety is part of the system that is um, hopefully mustering a functional response to a problem. In other words, most of this literature, Just World and other stuff, I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody, but and they can do their thing and it's fine. But from my point of view, most of what they're doing is saying like, if only I weren't anxious, there'd be no problems. I mean, it's a very kind of first world <laughs> like way of thinking about things like, mm. oh, I just don't want to be, you know, neurotic. But to my way of thinking, threat systems are for managing threats, like not getting the disease or not getting killed or not, you know, letting your family go hungry or yourself or not being social. There's a number of different domains of threat, but they're more objective in nature, not at least like endogenous, oh, what if I felt icky about my own, you know, what if I die? And the problem is anxiety. Like, uh, no, the problem is the problem. Anxiety is part of the response to a problem. And I just, I have a, it's weird well, because I, I kind of swim in that world, but I have a hard time fully grasping that thinking about things that way. Man, I, I could have a whole nother hour conversation about this very thing with you. That's a whole nother can of worms, but well, I'll, 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 I'll let you. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I, 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 I will, I will let you off the hook. I, yeah, al I already, I already kept you for, uh, for this oh is gosh. such a fantastic conversation that I, I apologize. I, I kept you on here for a little longer than I, um, I usually do, uh, with my guests. But this is a terrific conversation. So I hope you aren't neglecting your family and children and work life too much in this extra 20 minutes that I took. You know, uh, in this quarantine <laughs> context, it's kind of nice to have a solid reason to well, be locked well, in a room. Well, yeah. you're, you're, you're welcome. Well, yeah. if you ever if you ever need uh, more boundaries again, I'd love to have you back on the show sometime. Well, thank uh, you. We'll, we'll open some more cans of worms. Um, and yeah, this was terrific. And thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next episode. Uh, like and subscribe. Is that a thing? Oh, yeah. I'm supposed yeah. to say like and subscribe. Yeah. I'm new to yeah. doing the YouTube. I, yeah. I'm just the worst. Um, all right. Yeah. Uh, oh, there I go. Self-deprecating again. Crap. Uh, all right. Got to work on that. Uh, well, yeah. thanks. Look at how well we're cooperating right now. See there? I'm turning it around right at the end. All right. Thank you, guys. Stop it. Stop it. A podcast. <clears throat> a podcast network.